0: I'm going to tell you a story today of God's unfailing love, and I just pray that you would be able to get half of the, uh, the truth of it through my uh, sinful lips. But um, it's really the most beautiful story ever told, and all throughout Scripture, Jesus is described as the bridegroom, and the church is described as his bride. God created marriage, and he used the same concept as a blueprint for his plan of salvation. The framework of marriage runs throughout the Bible from beginning to end and is one more proof of the consistency and inerrancy of Scripture. God uses the imagery of marriage to convey the intimate relationship that he desires to have with us, his people. It's a beautiful picture of his great love for us, And why he ultimately created us. Now God begins the Bible after creation with a wedding between Adam and Eve. And he ends the book of Revelation with a wedding. Jesus began his earthly ministry with a wedding and will end it with a wedding. Um, Incidentally, he performed his first miracle at the wedding in Canaan. And he will perform his last miracle at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He transformed ordinary water into the very best wine at Canaan, and at the wedding feast of the Lamb, He will transform His people from ordinary, broken, sin-marred bodies to the very best, perfect, and imperishable bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52 say, But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Now, we were all created to be brides, even you guys. We were created to be, to be brides. The Hebrew word for bride is kala, and the meaning of kala is the perfect one. Now, isn't it interesting that in this union between the church and Jesus, that the bride is known as the perfect one? How can this be? We are born to be the bride, but we're not born as the bride. We are born imperfect perfect as sinners, but we are to become the kala, the perfect one, when we say yes to the bridegroom. We are perfected as we are joined to him. And the more we join our hearts and lives to him, the more sanctified we become, and the more we become the kala, the perfect one. Kala also means the completed one. You see, deep in our hearts, in the center of our souls, there's this vacuum that needs to be filled so we can be completed. We try to fill that void with all kinds of things like family, possessions, good works, our jobs, power, prestige, maybe even sinful things like drugs, sex, rock and roll, whatever it is. But none of these things will ever complete us. Only the bridegroom can perfect and complete us. Only Jesus. Why? Because we were created by him and we were created for him. We were created to be his bride and we can never be completed or perfected until we join ourselves to him in marriage. Incidentally, the meaning of the word bridegroom in Hebrew is the one who joins himself. Only by joining every part of our lives to the bridegroom can we be perfected or completed. Our hearts, our souls, our innermost being, and when we uh, become one with him, our desires are transformed to match his because we are no longer uh, searching for satisfaction, um, the satisfaction that comes from other things. Our selfish desires will be replaced with, uh, with a deep desire through the Holy Spirit, to want to please him when we are joined to him we become one flesh and one in spirit with him and we are perfected and completed through him he is the very best provider and we can fully trust him to give our lives fulfillment and meaning now today we're going to see how the ancient jewish wedding custom mirrors our spiritual walk with jesus from beginning to end how many of you have ever heard this Not too many. Awesome. You guys are in for a treat. First time I saw this, it just blew me away. Um, We will examine this walk, and and, and we're going to split it into three different phases. The initial phase will focus on how the, the traditional Jewish wedding custom mirrors the early stages of coming to faith in Jesus. And this is called the betrothal. The second phase is the phase that will focus on how these same Jewish wedding customs mirror the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we prepare ourselves, as we just sang about, about our Savior's return. And then the final phase, will examine the customs of the Jewish wedding feast and how it parallels the second coming of Christ and gives us a clue to watch uh, for as we eagerly look for his appearing. And so this is where Uh, we are going to be getting into Revelation and thought that this would be a great uh, segue as uh, Shane starts the study of Revelation. So the betrothal. Unlike the Western marriage practice that we are familiar with today, the traditional uh, Jewish marriage is much more formal and involves several steps. The first is the betrothal. This step began when the bridegroom left his father's home and traveled to the bride's house to establish a marriage covenant. It's interesting to note that the bride never traveled to the bridegroom, and thus we see the eternal truth that we can never reach God. He always comes to us, no matter where we are, no matter how far. And isn't that what Jesus did for us as he left his Father's home in heaven and became flesh and traveled to our home here in this world? Philippians 2, 5-7 through 7 says, Jesus who, being in very uh, nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made into human likeness." Now, think about what he was leaving and what would he would have to endure while he was here on Earth. Now, that, that's love. Now, the second part of the was the was the establishment of a bride price. This was a specific price paid by the bridegroom to the bride's parents and was established to prove a bridegroom's worthiness as a suitor. In other words, the bride price was necessary to prove the bridegroom's ability to adequately provide for his bride. This price was most often based on the perceived worth of the girl and beauty and industriousness often increased the girl's value. So what was the bride price that Jesus paid for his betrothed the church? Any guesses? It was his life. How wonderful to consider that Jesus paid the very highest price for his bride, the church. And that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is more than able to not just adequately care for us, but do it abundantly. It is also humbling to consider that his bride, the church, us, we were not really beautiful or industrious at all when he first, we were first betrothed to him. He paid the highest price uh, that ever paid to secure us. Um, and, um, and, you know, our filthy rags will be uh, white linen that is without stain or wrinkle. Now that's Love. In Ephesians 5:27 or 25 through 27 it says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. The next step in the betrothal called for a written document to be drawn up and this was known as the ketubah. The ketubah is the contract that states the bride price, the promise of the groom, and the rights of the bride. Any guesses as to what the believers' ketubah would be today? How about the Word of God, the Bible? Um, think about it. What do we have that? Uh, what do we have that lists the bride's price, the promises, the bride's rights? It's the Bible. It's plain to see when we consider all the promises of God to every believer and how they are legally ours in Messiah. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. One of the most important promises that the bridegroom makes to the bride is that he will return for her, And that is our blessed hope that Jesus will return for us and take us to be with him. Now, the fourth part of the betrothal was the bride must give her consent to be married to the bridegroom. Now, this was done through the ceremonial drinking of the cup. The bridegroom would pour a cup of wine, and if the young woman drank from the cup after the bridegroom, it signified her acceptance of the proposal. Now, we must also give our consent To accept the free gifts of salvation for eternal life. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We find the symbol of our acceptance of Jesus' proposal in this cup through the communion ceremony. Each time we partake of the cup, we confirm our betrothal to Jesus. Now, the fifth and final step in the betrothal process involved the bridegroom giving gifts to the bride. The gifts would be most likely jewelry, spices, oils, and could include money. Now, these gifts were used to help the bride to prepare for the wedding. In exchange for these gifts, the bride would devote her love, commitment, and loyalty to the bridegroom as she waited for his return. The giving of gifts would signify completion of this phase and would seal the betrothal. So what gift do we receive when we accept the proposal of Jesus? Holy Spirit. The gift he gives to us is the Holy Spirit. And just as the giving of gifts sealed the betrothal, the giving, the giving of the Holy Spirit seals us John 14, 26 says, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So, our first principle from all this is that the bridegroom abundantly provides for our every need. The question is, are you betrothed to the bridegroom? And if not, why not? Don't wait. If you, if you haven't done that and you're feeling compelled to do that, talk to one of the elders, talk to Pastor Shane, talk to me. Um, it's the most important decision that you will ever make. And the question is how are you showing love, commitment, and loyalty to the bridegroom in exchange for the gifts that he's given you? Now, the second part of the uh, betrothal or the wedding process would be called the, the preparation. And that is, would be if you're already a believer in Christ. You're in this preparation period now. We've already completed the first part. At this point, the next phase of the marriage would begin as the bridegroom would return to his father's house to prepare the wedding chamber for the honeymoon. The bride did not know where her man or when her man would return for her, and likewise the young man also did not know, as Shane said last week, Matthew twenty-four, thirty-six, Jesus said, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. That's why it says that. You see, it was up to the bridegroom's father, and the timing of all that revolved around the completion of the wedding chamber. So when the father was satisfied with the, with, that the chamber met his high standards, he would then send the son back for his bride. We see this symbolism beautifully borne out in the words of Jesus when he said, my, father, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so you may also be where I am. That's John 14, 2 through 3. At this point, the bridegroom would return to the father's house, and that is just what Jesus did as he returned to heaven following his crucifixion. So in the second phase of the Jewish marriage tradition, We know that the bridegroom is supposed to be busy. I'm sorry. The uh, yeah, busy preparing the wedding chamber. This chamber is also known as the hopa. The word hopa means covering, canopy, and defense. It is the wedding canopy that covers the man and woman as they exchange their wedding vows. The hopa signifies the bridegroom's covering over the bride, and the covering of God over both of them. Chapter 4 of Isaiah describes the last days and the coming of God's kingdom on earth. It tells of God's glory filling Jerusalem, and over all the glory will be a covering. This covering is the original language, is in, in the original language is hopah. So here we see that in the days of the kingdom that there will be a hopah or a wedding canopy over Jerusalem. This means that Jerusalem will also be married to God. In fact, it means that everything under the canopy will be married or joined to God. So the results will be that everything that is joined to God in marriage will also be holy and glorious. Now, what would the bride be doing during this extended amount of time as she waited for the bridegroom's return? She would use this time to prepare herself. How would she do this? She did this by no longer longer focusing on her present home, but focusing on herself and her future home. It was no longer important to beautify the place that she would soon be leaving. No, it was now time to use the gifts the bridegroom had given her to beautify herself in anticipation of her new home and her new husband." She would now be using all of her time in her old home to prepare herself for her new life in her new home. We should do the same as we wait for the Messiah to return for us. This process of preparing ourselves for our bridegroom is known as sanctification. Sanctification is the process where we are made holy, where we are set apart as sacred, and where we are consecrated. It means to impart religious sanction to, to render legitimate or binding, to sa- sanctify a vow. It's that, um, isn't that what we are supposed to be doing with the help of the Holy Spirit as we wait for, for re- Jesus to return for us? Now, the first thing the bride would do to ready herself is to take part in a mikvah. A mikvah was a ceremonial act of purification by the immersion of water, and it indicated a separation from the former way of life to the new way of life. Now, what does that sound like to you? It's baptism. This, of course, is the symbol of baptism that believers take part in to signify the betrothal that they've entered into with Jesus. It is a visual reminder that we are turning from our old sinful life and entering into a new life with Jesus. Secondly, the bride would then light an oil lamp and set it in the window each night as she waited on her groom to return. It would help him to find her. and would also be a signal to the other suitors that she was already betrothed. For us, the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and the light symbolizes Jesus, the light of the world. The Holy Spirit also seals us so the evil one will know that we are already betrothed to Messiah. The symbolism of the lamp and the oil also remind us of the parable that Jesus told of the wise and foolish virgins and how we need to be prepared and actively watch for the Savior's return. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. We've been waiting for a long time, it seems like. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may be not enough for us and you. Instead, Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know the day or the hour. And that's Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Now, in addition to the mikvah and keeping the lamp burning with plenty of spare oil, the bride would also prepare her wedding garments so they would be fresh and clean and hung in such a way as they would not get wrinkled. In this way, she was fully prepared for the return of her bridegroom. We, too, are to be anxiously waiting for the Messiah by keeping ourselves pure through the power of the Holy Spirit, Our righteousness is like dirty rags, but thankfully, Jesus dressed us in his righteousness. Revelation 19, 7 through 8 says, His bride has made herself ready. Fine linens, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then Luke 12:35 through 37 says, "Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door to him. It will be good for those servants whose fi- master finds them watching when he comes." So to summarize, in the second phase of the Jewish ceremony, wedding ceremony, the bride was preparing herself physically, and spiritually uh, for the new life that she would soon be embarking on. She was to focus on her bridegroom and make herself clean and without wrinkle. She was to wait expectantly for his return, with her lamp burning brightly with plenty of extra oil because she did not know when he would return. This is the phase, again, that we are now living in. Our second principle is that bridegroom is preparing a place for us while we prepare for his return. Hopefully, we are. We know that he's preparing a place for us, but are we preparing for his return? And so, in what ways do you need to focus on beautifying yourself in preparation of the return of the bridegroom? How can we be more faithful to the bridegroom as he as we await his return? Now, the third and final stage of the Jewish wedding ceremony would find the bridegroom being told by his father that preparations on the wedding chamber were completed and that he could now fulfill his covenant by retrieving his beautiful bride. Now, this is what we look forward to, right? This is the second coming. This describes all of that. The bridegroom would often, most often, for his bride in the middle, I'm sorry, he would come most often, his bride in the middle of the night. Revelation 16, 15 says, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. The groomsmen would run ahead of the groom, sounding the shofar or the trumpet, and shouting to announce the coming of the bridegroom. Matthew 25, 6 says, At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the groom, bridegroom, come out to meet him. And in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen. Uh, It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now the bridesmaids would hear the groomsmen who had preceded the bridegroom and would turn out with their lamps, as we just read about, or not, uh, trimmed to light the way for him to find his bride. The bridegroom would claim his bride, and the wedding ceremony would begin the wet, um, I'm sorry, and the wedding party would begin the wedding ceremony, which is known as this, the new scene. Now the, now, the new scene means to lift up, carry, or elevate. Now, have you guys ever seen any movies um, where they you have Jewish people getting uh, married and they lift them up on chairs? Have you you ever see that? This is, uh, I think, what that was describing. So, the new scene, uh, means to lift up, carry, elevate, and it's the lifting up of the bride and groom. And it was the, the uh, ancient wedding custom where the couple would be lifted by poles and carried to the wedding chamber. Now, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like the rapture. Okay, sure does to me. Uh, next, the wedding procession would take the elevated couple back to the father's house, celebrating all the way, There the couple would enter the wedding chamber that the bridegroom had spent so much time meticulously preparing. The bridegroom's friend, now this sounds a little weird, but the bridegroom's friend would stand by the door waiting for him to confirm when the marriage had been consummated. John 3.29 says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Now, at the conclusion of the ceremony, the couple would once again share a cup of wine. This is most likely what prompted Jesus to say in Matthew 26, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Now, the bride and bridegroom would spend the next couple of days in the safety and seclusion of the hoopah. Remember that the hoopah means covering or defense. Now, I am. This is where I'm going to tell you I am a pre-trib guy, and that's because of this. Now, I know you're not, and that's okay. It's not going to mean that you're not going to heaven or I'm not going to heaven. You know, we need to be prepared, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. But I, personally, for myself, um, you know, and you, you, you have to make this own decision for yourself. Is Every step of, this, of the way, all the way through here, um, we've seen this mirror image of our walk with Christ. Now, we get to um, this, this, this section, and the bride and bridegroom would stay in the wedding chamber for seven days. Does anybody know how long the tribulation is supposed to last? Seven years. I don't know. That's very specific to me. That's... That's, that's what I, nothing real super scientific, but that's what I hang my hat on with the pre-trib rapture. Um, so, you know, take it for, for whatever. Um, but So I just think uh, that the whole thing is very, very interesting. So the Jewish wedding tradition would then finally end with a wedding feast. The bridegroom and, and the bride would emerge from the bridal chamber after that seven-day honeymoon. There would be a supper to celebrate the union of the couple that would be hosted by the bride's father, and he would be responsible for inviting the guests, and there would be much joy and celebration. And Revelation 19, 6 through 9, says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, "Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So principle three is the bridegroom Jesus will return for his bride, the church. How are you daily making yourself ready to meet the bridegroom. And then the, the next question is, and I'm, this question's for me too, what is keeping me from inviting others to the wedding feast? I'm just going to uh, cap this all off with a, an illustration I found that was interesting. There was a very unusual military funeral in California in December of 2013. Sergeant First Class Joseph Gantt who fought in both World War II and the Korean War, was laid to rest. He had been captured in Korea in 1950 and died the following year. But his body was not returned for many years, and his death was never confirmed by the North Koreans. His wife, Clara, waited for decades for her husband to come back. She would regularly regularly went to meetings with government officials seeking information about what had happened to her husband. Clara even bought a house and had it professionally landscaped, so all Joseph, Joseph would have to do when he came home was go fishing. She was 94 years old when his remains were finally brought home for a military funeral with full honors. It wasn't the homecoming she dreamed of, but she finally knew his fate. Clara took a reporter, uh, told a reporter who interviewed her, he told me if anything happened to him, he wanted me to remarry. And I told him, no, no. Here I am, still still his wife, and I'm going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home. So love, true love, godly love, is not temporary or transient. Love is a commitment that is meant to last. Love is not based on everything going right or always being happy. Love is not an emotional feeling, but rather a choice of the will. Casual commitments do not produce a foundation for deep and meaningful relationships. Instead, we should love others as God loves us with an unfailing love that never ends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you pursue us with. Thank you, Lord, for your patience when we fail. Thank you that uh, Lord, that you promise to complete us and that you make us perfect um, when you clothe us in your righteousness, Lord. And you, we trade in our filthy rags and our, and our sin for your righteousness, Lord, that you give us freely. And all we have to do is say yes and accept it, Lord. Help us to prepare ourselves. Help us to look expectantly and wait on you, Lord. Help us to keep our, our, our uh, lamps lit And in the window, Lord, as we await your return. And Lord, help us to expectantly be looking for your return. And help us to recognize the signs, Lord, that we see all around us. Um, Lord, I believe you're you're, you're coming soon. Um, And you you tell us that you're coming soon. So Lord, just help us to um, be steadfast. Help us to invite others. Help us to make ourselves ready and help us not to fall asleep. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, and thank you for your amazing, unfailing love. We pray these things in your name, amen.